The Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by Hydroid. Hydroid's small, medium, and large class Remus unmanned underwater vehicles are used worldwide to collect valuable data in waters up to 6,000 meters deep for mine countermeasures, hydrography, and search and rescue operations. Learn more about Remus UUVs at www.hydroid.com. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for this special episode is my usual co-host, Proceedings Editor-in-Chief Bill Hamlet. Hey, Ward. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. And a guy who's become a regular (laughs) here. He's like our own Willie Geist. He's become a regular here on the Proceedings Podcast. The Editor-in-Chief of Naval History Magazine, Richard Latour. (laughs) Thank you, Ward. Appreciate the introduction. So we woke up this morning, Monday morning, to some breaking news that was quite an eye-opener. And that is, uh, in fact, I saw the article that Sam Legrone and the US9 News team had written about this topic, that Admiral Moran will not be uh, taking over as the Chief of Naval Operations um, the details uh, are basically what we could surmise from the article that he maintained contact with another naval officer who had been removed for a uh, sexual harassment allegation. Apparently, he was questioned about that by the SECNAV, and there was some issue about judgment and so forth and so on. So long story short, Emma Moran has taken his name out of the hat to be the next CNO. That change of command was going to happen on the 1st of August. What SECNAV has said is Admiral Richardson will remain as CNO basically until further notice, I guess. So what am I leaving out, Bill? No, that sounds right. And, and you know, the cast of characters that, that could take the job is pretty limited. If you look at just the Navy four stars, I think there's a total of six of them. You know, Admiral Davidson is out at uh, Indo-PACOM. you got Admiral Grady down at Fleet Forces Command. Admiral Fogo is uh, Navier. Uh, Admiral Caldwell is at um, Naval Reactors, and, and Admiral Richardson came from Naval Reactors, so they're probably not going to go back to that position again. And then you've got Admiral Richardson and Admiral uh, Moran. So, uh, you know, if, if they're going to stick with the current group of four stars as the as the next CNO, you know, that that pool is pretty pretty limited. Yeah. Um, you know, there's some debate here. We've we've been talking this morning about who else could be. Uh, you know, they could go down to a three-star as they did with Admiral Zumwalt back in the 1970s when they, you know, went past several other senior guys. Is that guys. the last time they did that? I think that's the last okay. time that, that uh, the Navy had reached into the three-stars to, yeah. to select a CNO. In any case, uh, we won't handicap the pool here. No. We would direct people to check out the May issue of Proceedings Magazine, which as every year in the May issue, we have the entire lineal list of flag officers from all the services, uh, or the ones we cover, which is Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard, and the senior enlisted and DOD uh, co- chain of command as well. But if you look at the Navy, as you were just describing, you can kind of see who would be on the short list. But we will not guess on the proceedings podcast about that. That's not really our role necessarily. Um, but we would direct the listeners to keep abreast of USNI News this week, because as soon as that team knows, you will know, and they will know before anyone else. So 
keep your eyes on us and i news yeah undoubtedly well let's move to our guest this morning and i wanted to point out as we do this that uh, we, we've had a lot of uh, podcast topics on naval history uh, recently, and uh, that's in keeping with the Naval Institute strategic plan. We've just got a, a newly blessed uh, 2019 to 2023 strategic plan. Uh, objective number three is to preserve and learn from naval history. And so uh, Richard's job as the editor-in-chief of Naval History falls under that line of effort, as does a lot of what happens down in the Naval Institute press, uh, as does uh, quite a few of our, mm-hmm. our, our conferences and events things. So we we definitely see at the Naval Institute, part of our DNA evolves around and revolves around uh, our role in preserving and uh, learning from uh, naval history. So we have on the line today, uh, as, uh, as she pointed out, as we were doing the uh, mic checks, live from Constitution Avenue, we have uh, two guests with us from the National Museum of American History. We've got Miranda Summers Lowe, who is a curator for Armed Forces History, and we have Dr. Frank Blazich, who is the lead curator for military history, uh, both at the National Museum of American History. And uh, Miranda is uh, helping to organize an event coming up uh, in about a week, two, uh, week and a half. Um, the Smithsonian American Women's History Initiative proudly announces the symposium toward a more inclusive women's military history to be held in Washington, D.C. on July 18th. So, Miranda, let's start with you. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast, and tell us a little bit about this event coming up uh, just over a week from now. Hi, good morning, and, and thanks for having me on the podcast. Uh, I'm a big fan of Proceedings and the podcast, and um, excited to talk more about the Women's Military History Symposium that we have going on July 18th. For the, for the listeners, this is not going to happen at the National Museum of, of American History. It's at a slightly different venue, correct? That's correct. So it's going to be at uh, the Reynolds Center for American Art um, in the building where the National Portrait Gallery and the Smithsonian American Art Museum are um, in the Chinatown neighborhood, uh, partially because we are co-sponsoring this event between a couple of the Smithsonian museums, which is really exciting. So it'll be American History, the National Portrait Gallery, and the National Postal Museum, uh, where we have curators and exhibitions um, that focus on women's military history. So women's military history isn't necessarily something that's confined to just one of the Smithsonian museums. And what's your job? What's your role in this this symposium? (laughs) Well, I like to think that uh, the work that I do with the women's military history uh, collection in the American History Museum, which is one of the best collections of women's military uniforms and insignia and ephemera that, you know, we, we have in the nation. So it's exciting to be able to like draw upon that rich bank of collections and trying to set up this symposium, um, which we're really trying to bring in people from some different backgrounds. So, you know, there's a lot of symposium conferences out there that um, really try to attract that academic crowd or really try to uh, engage the public. And what myself and um, the co- my fellow conference organizers are really trying to do is to engage different parts of the public, so both museum professionals and the general public and academics, teachers, and female and currently are female veterans and female currently serving military members as well. And this event is open to the public. So people who want to attend, who listen to the podcast, who, who decide, hey, I'd like to go see that, 
they can they can show up do they have to get tickets what's uh, how does this uh, how does this happen yeah we'd love to welcome anyone who's interested um, the event is free it's open to the public um, you can find uh, the information for it on the uh, Smithsonian American Women's History Initiative webpage so AWHI um, or on Eventbrite, and I can certainly um, send out the link to you guys as well uh, if you know there's show notes for the podcast. Cool. Yeah, we'll, uh, well, we don't have show notes for the podcast, but we can put this out on our Facebook and our mm-hmm. Twitter pages as well. Assuming it doesn't fill up, we'll accept day of registrations as well. Miranda, uh, is it correct that this is the first in a series of symposia about women's military history? Well, it will certainly be the first in a series of symposia about women's history that uh, Smithsonian's put on. And right now we're trying to uh, gauge the interest and see if this is something that we should keep doing on a reoccurring basis. And given the amount of um, enthusiasm we've seen, the number of participating organizations and people registering, it looks like there's a whole community of people who are interested in examining women's roles and in shaping uh, the military stories that we all know so well. So um, mm. looking forward to continuing this enthusiasm into the future. Miranda, tell us about some of the, the keynote speakers or the panelists that you've got lined up for this event. Yeah, we're really excited. Our keynote is going to be Brigadier General Promotable Talita Crossland from Army Medical Command. And she is a dynamic powerhouse of a public speaker. And she'll kind of be talking a little bit about you know, how understanding women's roles in the past can help us understand uh, moving forward in the future. As far as our panels, we have a huge variety. We have some uh, authors and researchers who would probably be familiar to people who read naval history. So we have Regina Akers coming in from uh, Naval History and Heritage Command. We have Jerry Bell, who's published with the Naval Institute before, um, talking about African-American women in the Yeoman F. Um, and, you know, we also have pulled in some people um, that you might not necessarily think would be there at a symposium. So um, the Marine Corps has their first female combat artist, and she's going to yeah. be coming in as part of a panel. And we also reached out to some of the local uh, veteran artist community to, to kind of look past um, some of the more traditional forms of expressing personal history. And so we're going to have some live performers there as well. One of the um, things we should segue, I wanted to bring out that uh, especially Richard has got a a really great uh, relationship with the Smithsonian and uh, probably once a month or so, Richard, you and and, uh, uh, Emily Martin, our our photo researcher, spend some time at the Smithsonian in the archives and uh, you, you, you've had some amazing things that have shown up in the pages of Naval History Magazine, some of the pieces, pieces from the past. Right. Uh, and through that uh, relationship, you've met, met Frank and you've met uh, Miranda and you've, we've had some uh, behind the scenes uh, access there at the Smithsonian Institute. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, well, uh, through one of our coworkers here in the periodicals department, uh, Brian O'Rourke, uh, we were introduced to Miranda and were able to also meet Frank, uh, and they've uh, kind of helped us out with one of the features of Naval History Magazine, the last page, Pieces of the Past, where we feature a interesting, unusual artifact. Uh, Eric Mills, one of the editors here, who is also in charge of the Institute's Oral History Program, 
uh, is in charge of this section of the magazine. I believe we have a uh, Smithsonian artifact coming up in the upcoming issue. That will be the September-October issue, if that's not correct. Correct. Uh, Frank, are you involved in that? Good morning. Uh, yes. I, uh, the the plan. Uh, do, would you like me to reveal what said artifacts are? Sure. Sure. Yeah. We acquired, uh, back in the 1980s, a number of artifacts related to Admiral of the Navy George Dewey that came to us from his wife's great-nephew, and these items apparently had came into his possession in the 1930s uh, that all belonged to the Admiral and largely were forgotten and laid into it and were sitting in a storage unit. Uh, until about 1983 or 84, when they came to the attention of the Smithsonian, that the items had been left in in the will to the institution. And so what we're going to show are the shoulder straps of Admiral Dewey. So we have them from his rank of Commodore uh, through Rear Admiral and finally Admiral and Admiral of the Navy. So very interesting insignia, as one could well imagine. I We don't have much information as to when he wore this particular insignia. But we at least know that the shoulder straps for Admiral were made in Manila because they're actually embroidered on the back from an embroidery shop in Manila. So he most likely had those made after Mobile Bay, but prior to, sorry, Mobile Bay, excuse me, after Manila Bay, thinking of a different battle, another part of Dewey's life, uh, but after the Battle of Manila Bay, but prior to his returning to the United States. So very, very interesting insignia that, I don't believe has been on display here at the museum ever. So the USNI readers, you guys will be the first to see this insignia since we acquired it. And Admiral of the Navy is sort of an unusual rank. Was he one of the only uh, people to hold that position? Uh, he was the only person. Uh, if memory serves, it was awarded to him by Act of Congress in 1903, retroactive to, I believe, 1899. The shoulder strap, I was going back through the uniform regulations, at the time, there was no uh, what we considered a full admiral or four-star admiral active in the United States Navy. Um, so he originally had the title of admiral, and the insignia consisted of four silver stars with two with the outermost stars superimposed over foul anchors. And those foul anchors were in gold, and the stars were in silver. And then when the title of admiral and position of admiral of the Navy was created, the insignia remained the same. Interestingly enough, what we have here are two versions of this insignia. One of them has silver foul anchors, and the other has gold foul anchors. And I haven't yet, uh, with my time, been able to ascertain why is that. Was this just a manufacturing faux pas, or was this done intentionally to distinguish Admiral versus Admiral of the Navy? I welcome input from our listeners. Maybe they have the answer for me, and I'd love to hear from you. So you, you brought up the point that uh, these uh, admiral's shoulder boards, if you will, shoulder straps, shoulder boards, had never been um, displayed in the museum. Uh, so I'm curious, what percentage of the relics that you've got at the museum or artifacts 
uh, are on display at any given time and what percentage have never been displayed and, and are just held in, you know, like the uh, Indiana Jones uh, Temple of, uh, you know, the, the sort of the, that government warehouse where everything from the Ark of the Covenant to, uh, you know, who shot Lincoln, it's all it's all in there somewhere. We have top men looking for it. But what what percentage of stuff is is never seen by the public? Well, I went into the historical profession because math was never my strong suit, but one could argue that it's probably uh, 1%, less than, easily less wow. than 5%, maybe 1% to 2%. It's a very small percentage of objects are on display at any given time, or for that matter, are on display in the course of their existence in the museum's collection. Mm -hmm. uh, with that being said, uh, we have, gosh, I think in the museum, 2 million total artifacts. And in the military collections, our artifacts are well in the tens of thousands. Of, of, the Navy, of those artifacts that are Navy-related, uh, I would say it's probably less than 1% that we currently have on exhibition. Uh, but there's a tremendous amount of material here that is available and accessible to researchers. If they're working on any one particular topic, uh, they're more than welcome to contact us, and we can arrange to share these objects with them. Have you, how, interesting to kind of look at some of the different reasons that is. And a lot of it is just for the, the health and care of the object. Um, you know, when we take on responsibility for, you know, these objects that are really important um, and, you know, we're preserving them for as long as possible. And a lot of times light exposure and handling, uh, mm -hmm. it, it's not in the best interest of that object. So, you know, when there's appropriate exhibition or anniversary or commemoration that goes out on display, but um, often the fact that they aren't on display means that we really will have them for the future. Yeah. Well, um, the Navy, of course, has a museum system of its own. How how do you, do you acquire your naval artifacts? Are they usually individuals that, that bequeath them to the uh, Smithsonian? Some of our favorite objects come from individuals. Um, you know, so often people have these objects from their service or from their family service that mm -hmm. come with really rich stories and a lot of information or, or things that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily think of as being a historic object up front, mm -hmm. um, but carry a lot of meaning. But we do also get transfers from the Navy. Um, mm -hmm. Some of the objects we have in the Smithsonian collection predate the Navy Museum um, or, or really a more formalized, established, you know, Naval History and Heritage Command like we have now. So that's kind of interesting to think about um, how even, you know, from the time the Smithsonian was getting set up in the 1890s, some of the first objects uh, we wanted to bring in, you know, came in uh, from Naval history. And it's always been mm -hmm. a big part of, you know, American history. One interesting uh Side note to that, too, for those visitors of the National Museum of the United States Navy at the Washington Navy Yard, there's a large number of ordnance pieces on display inside the museum itself. Mm -hmm. The majority of those were actually stored here at the Smithsonian, uh, that oh, they had yeah. been loaned to the Navy, uh, particularly following World War I. We had a large exhi exhibition of Navy technologies used in the war, mm -hmm. and these objects were all loans. They weren't actually Smithsonian property. And when uh, the museum was established uh, there at the Navy Yard, a lot of these objects were then kind of brought back. Uh, and actually, Admiral Burke, I believe, became aware that we had a lot of this material. And they asked to return the loans 
so that these objects could be exhibited there at the museum and have remained so to this day. And we have some other loans, uh, long-standing loans, that we're currently working with Naval History and Heritage Command to return and potentially to be placed on display either at the current museum or the museum that's under development for the future. Frank, in the uh, in the current issue of Naval History Magazine, the uh, July-August issue, uh, you've authored a, an article called The Grey Ghosts Artist. Uh, and this is a story about a, a gentleman named Clarence Thibodeau, who uh, spent uh, his entire, almost his entire Navy career, uh, short short Navy career in World War II, uh, on board the USS Pensacola, uh, and was on board during all 13 of her uh, battle stars. Uh, so Midway, Santa Cruz, Guadalcanal, Tarawa, Iwo Jima, Okinawa, and he painted uh, a number of those battle scenes, and it's just incredible um, uh, images, and... Um, Featured in this article that you've written were the six uh, paintings that Thibodeau donated to the Smithsonian in 1957. Tell us a little bit about that and about whether these images have ever been uh, uh, shown to the public before. When I first came here to the museum, I, I had never heard of Clarence Thibodeau. Uh, a little side note, my, in my former life, I was a historian for Naval History and Heritage Command. So I knew of the story of Pensacola, but I didn't know necessarily of her individual crew. And one of my colleagues introduced me to one of these paintings of Thibodeau, and I went, my God, you know, this is incredible art. What's the backstory? And what I learned is, as, you, as the article mentions, he's a, he was a very talented artist prior to entering the United States Navy. Uh, there were some family issues. He kind of had a falling out of sorts with his father and decided to head west to fulfill his destiny and ends up enlisting in uh, late October 1941. Uh, Thibodeau decided, and he even said this in press in a news article when he was enlisted, uh, that he wanted to paint and wanted to document what the Navy was doing. And uh, it's not clear how he was able to find space to store his canvases aboard ship, but he did have permission to do it. And he just happens to be the man with the right talent, uh, coincidentally, at some of the most influential battles of the Pacific War. And he's capturing in his canvases these scenes of immense, in some cases, immense action. In other cases, there's a subtlety to what he's sharing. And I don't believe he was on the museum's radar at all in 1957 uh, when he approached us and then donated uh, six of his canvases to us. Prior to the museum requiring them, I know of at least one of them for certain being displayed. And for those who actually see the article, it's the painting, I think, is just titled Pensacola Torpedoed. And so it shows the actions at the Battle of Pasiferongo where Pensacola is torpedoed in the evening hours. You can see that it hit an, the torpedo struck an oil bunker, and so the, the fuel oil sprayed up all up on the, the mast and uh, the radars and so forth and uh, ignited and caused a major conflagration aboard ship. A very vivid painting uh, filled with fine detail. Kind of not, not necessarily showing chaos, but kind of this orderly movement of personnel to both fight the fire and evacuate the wounded from the scene. That painting was exhibited in Hawaii, I believe in 1943. And it's also featured in Pensacola's cruise book from the war. Beyond that, however, these paintings really have not been seen by many people. They were on display here at the museum in the early 1960s when we opened our military exhibits. Uh, they then came off display and, for the most part, have kind of been stored away and I think somewhat forgotten. 
Uh, Thibodeau did produce, at the end of the war, a set of lithographs of 14 of his paintings. We have here at the museum six of those 14 paintings. And those have been, those have, you can find them occasionally on eBay. I know the lithographs were displayed in the successor to USS Pensacola in the wardroom. But beyond that, this is largely unknown art. And it was a, a pleasure to share it with USNI, and I'm glad that you all wanted to share it with your wider audience. My hope is one of these days to get the canvases restored, because uh, they could use some touch-up in, in places and re remounting, and hopefully get them back on exhibition at some point in the near future. So, Frank, you mentioned that uh, Thibodeau found himself in the, the middle of the war. It's interesting. He went west to with aspirations of being a Disney artist um, and uh, wound up uh, you know, involved in, in the war, as, as all young men of that era were in one form or another. What I like about your article in the most recent issue of Naval History is it tells sort of the details and the granular elements of war. I think one in interesting vignette deals with fireman third class Robert L. Weston. So talk to us about that, that situation. So Robert Weston was a, uh, was a friend of Thibodeau's. And uh, uh, play, now, Thibodeau published a book. It's called uh, My Life and the Divine Command. It's kind of a, a little autobiography. And he, this is where I found this vignette. Uh, Weston is a good friend of his. And Thibodeau, throughout the war, I don't know how the best way to describe it, he would have visions uh, he would he would have what he thought were religious signs, or maybe God's the Spirit speaking, the Holy Spirit speaking to him. And in this case, he conveyed how Weston had a premonition of his own death, and he conveys this to Thibodeau. Thibodeau is uh, he he tells him, "I want you to have the address of my of my, my family uh, in case something happens. You can let them know my fate." Uh, needless to say. Uh, Thibodeau is very upset by this situation and tries to convey to his friend that uh, there's 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 not going to be, you know, don't worry, nothing's going to happen to you, you're going to be okay. Anyways, after the torpedoing at Tassafaranga and the crew are fighting to save the ship and keep it afloat, uh, Thibodeau, I believe, is placed at uh, the stern scupper, and his orders are just keep it free of debris, keep, keep this thing open uh, so we can keep water flowing. And what should he what should he spy there in the water in the oil soaked water? But a letter, and when he picks up the letter, it's actually addressed to Weston's mother, kind of fulfilling the premonition that uh, Weston conveyed to him weeks prior. Uh, I don't think I mentioned in the article that Thibodeau did in fact, when he was on leave, he did in fact visit uh, Weston's family, and I believe he did deliver that letter to the parents and spoke with them about him and his passing. And the, but he doesn't really know, uh, Thibodeau never really knew what happened to Weston and the confusion of the torpedoing and the, the fight to save the ship. They lost touch. And I, I do not know for a fact if Weston's remains were recovered or if he remains missing in action, but that shouldn't be too difficult to find out. I mean, the drama of that is amazing. And, you know, I'm just seeing the screenplay in my mind's eye of how you would do the cinematography of him looking down and seeing this letter in the scupper there. It's just amazing, amazing stuff. There's another story. We don't have the canvas, so I didn't feature it in this, but uh, during the Battle of uh, Iwo Jima, in, uh, Pensacola was involved in softening up some of the Japanese shore defenses. And so it was patrolling off the, very close to the island uh, with the batteries you know, engaging Japanese targets. Thibodeau is in the Combat Information Center uh, as radar man third class. 
And he gets a premonition that something's going to happen. Something very bad is going to happen. And it practically turns him white. Uh, he, he's very, very upset about this and leaves his station. His shift is over. He leaves the station and sits in a chair on the side, kind of the sides of the CIC. And everyone's going, what's wrong? What's wrong? He said, something's going to happen. And as fate would have it, uh, a Japanese shell actually penetrated the CIC and detonated and killed a number of the personnel in there, uh, knocked the CIC out of action, as one could well imagine. Thibodeau later awoke, and I think he sat on top of a table in like the officer's, the officer's mess, covered in blood, mm-hmm. and his clothes had been torn off. He did not have any injuries, but he was covered in the blood of his shipmates who were killed in the explosion. He painted the scene of uh, Pensacola scene kind of in the uh, background with the shells detonating and you know, the Japanese shells hitting the vessel. But he didn't paint anything closer than that. Uh, perhaps he couldn't. Perhaps he didn't want to bring himself into that, back into that frame of mind as an artist. I would love to know what happened to the original painting. Uh, I've seen a lithograph of it, but I have no idea what the original canvas is. And if anything, that particular incident uh, at Iwo Jima is really what inspires him to create his magnum opus, if you will, a painting known as the Divine Command, which, if memory serves, is something like 10 by 6 feet in length. It is a monstrous canvas. Uh, I won't go into detail here, but if listeners are curious, Google The Divine Command by Clarence Thibodeau. It is a very fascinating painting, and I recommend people reading about it. Well, we're right. showing it right now on Facebook Live. I mean, was was did Thibodeau experience a religious conversion at this point or earlier I, in the I war? Think, well, one could say he he had perhaps a degree of ESP. Mm-hmm. I, I don't really talk about this in the article. He goes into into this to some extent in his autobiography, but he would have visions, and mm-hmm. there were several cases where he the divine command. He believed that God Himself, the Holy Spirit, spoke to him directly. Mm-hmm. in dreams and guided his painting and guided the elements that constitute the painting and what he is trying to portray there, that it is not necessarily his personal creative voice that's speaking, mm-hmm. but actually God directly speaking to him through his brush. Do we know if he was religious before the war necessarily, or is this something that... You know, he was. He was, remember, he was raised Catholic, uh, went to went to Mass devoutly, and uh, was was a very, very devout spiritual man uh, throughout mm-hmm. the course of his life. But it was his service in the Navy that kind of put him on this spiritual journey, if you will, uh, for the remainder of his life. And it's this one painting in particular, The Divine Command, really kind of captured his soul, if you will, for many, many years. Uh, he continued to paint and make his living as an artist uh, for the remainder of his life. But that one, that one particular canvas really dominated his life uh, from the, his time after the United, uh, from his service after the Navy, really until about the 1960s, became, as I said, really his magnum opus. The canvas is looking for a home, actually, at the moment. Uh, his, I'm in communication with his sister, who is the owner and the possessor of that canvas, hmm. and we're trying to help her find a suitable institution that would like to not only own it, but display it in the near future. You, you mentioned how big it was. Re- repeat that. It's about, if memory serves, about 10 by 6 feet and weighs 200 pounds. Yeah. Wow. It, so, is, it is a <laughs> monstrous canvas that requires a 
essentially its own truck just to move it. Yeah, and, and you almost have to build a room around the painting, yeah. right? Uh, I mean, it's a very dramatic, it sort of reminds me of the old Moody Blues covers or maybe an <laughs> L. Rod Hubbard paperback cover. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really, really a, a, a dramatic look and uh, sort of has some otherworldly elements to it. Um, yeah, it's a, it, it would definitely be a, a conversation starter if it was in your living room. <laughs> to put it you have a living room big enough. well that's yeah. it you can have a living room big enough to uh to host it right well we're about to build a conference center here maybe maybe <laughs> Pete would be interested yeah <laughs> no i'm thinking uh, you know uh, because of his catholic background i'm thinking uh you know some parish would love to have it that oh, kind of thing yeah. right yeah that's well, he he did have it displayed at at his uh, the home he shared with his with his wife in uh, in Florida, uh, Casa de Josefina, and if anything, he pulled it off display because so many people were coming in to see that mm-hmm. particular painting. Uh, many very you know both uh, religious leaders as as well as pilgrims, if you will, were coming to see the painting. It became such a dominating pilgrimage and experience for many people that if anything, Tivita was somewhat unnerved by that and decided to pull the canvas off display and, and put it into storage. I mean, just to describe it, and again, we're showing it right now on Facebook Live, you, you know, you have a Christ on the cross. There's a, a stair, staircase of what looks to be books going up to, uh, yeah. I guess it's, uh, it's, it's a, a heaven kind of looking heaven. thing, but it looks like a city, right, um, with uh, what looks to be like a dog's head building. On one side, and there's at the bottom there's what looks to be like a Swiss village of of churches and and a, a mountain range, uh, sort of in the distance. It's a snowy scene, um, and then between those two things is this like cosmic swirl where there's planets, and uh, it all forms into this hand over this uh, the the heaven part. It's it's really uh, and there's fire at the bottom, uh, so I guess that's maybe a representation of of, of hell. You know, it's very intense, and now you tell me that this is six feet by ten feet, um, and that—that's really uh, going to. There's nothing subtle about that. Um, so correct, and actually, as I said, uh, Thibodeau's autobiography, he goes into detail about what every single element means of the painting, and mm-hmm. I think if if you go to the Internet Archive, you can uh, you can check out the book, so to speak, and you can mm-hmm. readers, listeners can actually read uh, you know, Thibodeau's description of why. Everything in everything is actually as one would expect is in the painting for a reason, and what he is trying to signify there. The, he mentions the fire is, it's literally not meant to be a symbol of any kind of religious hell, but instead the fire is, it signifies destructive evil, which man, and I'm quoting Thibodeau, destructive evil which man himself creates. His own body feeds the flames of his own destruction, like coals feeding a furnace. Bodies fall into destruction and burn into ashes by their own free will and not by the judgment of God or his wrath. And the great pall of smoke created by the fire helps to blind our way to the golden age. Simply put, many of us choose evil and feed the flames, ignoring the need to change our ways and look up toward the Holy Spirit, showing us the way to escape like a fireman's ladder. And so this is just Ooh. part of Thibodeau's description of, it, of every element of the painting. Wow, but that is uh, some intense uh, writing. It, 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 it's it's very interesting. It's it's very very interesting. Kind of I profess out of my lane of special speciality, uh, but for any listeners, it's a, it, I highly recommend reading about the painting and 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 examining the photographs of it. It's a fascinating work. 
you mentioned he was religious when he, you know, raised in a Catholic family. Obviously, the crucible of war is is unlike anything else that a person would be exposed to in their lifetime. And his paintings, his style is 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 sort of uh, it's not impressionist, but he he doesn't have like a you know R. G. Smith's sort of fine details. But what he does capture is the kinetic part of combat. And and so, like you've pointed out, Frank, the, the Pensacola torpedoed is is maybe his uh, definitive work in terms of his wartime experience. Um, you got the tattered flag, you have the explosion, you have the men, just helmets uh, sort of highlighted by the flames. You know, it's a, it's a very visceral sort of style that he has. The Battle of Midway uh, painting is on page 22, now, Bill, check me out on this. Now, in Bancroft Hall, in the rotunda, as you're looking back at the front door, there is a painting reminiscent of this. And I'm wondering, is it this painting? Do we know this, Frank? Is is Because there is a Battle of Midway painting in Bancroft Hall that, uh, you know, I, I haven't held them up together, but it strikes me as the composition is near identical to what this is. Yeah, certainly similar, right? Yeah. It, you know, I don't know if there's anything, Frank, that you would know about that painting in Bancroft Hall. I'm unfamiliar with that painting, but what I can say uh, that I, I don't know, quite frankly, if this is how... Thibodeau was a lookout at Midway, so he would have been in a position to actually literally observe the battle and observe the attacks on the afternoon of, the, of June 4th. But I also was looking at photographs of the battle, and you can certainly see certain elements in those photographs that you know, are, have similarity with Thibodeau's, Thibodeau's perception of the battle and his observation point. So it wouldn't surprise me if he may have consulted some imagery, if he had access to it, mm -hmm. uh, when he was painting and, and sketching out his works. But in turn, uh, it wouldn't surprise me if other artists would use the same materials, thus producing works of art that all have a... a kind of a common foundation, if you will, of stylistic elements. The the point of view of the, the, the ship coming towards the 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 front of the painting and the uh, the Japanese airplane, whether that's a uh, a Betty or a Zeke or whatever it is, torpedo bomber going down, um, it, it just it's it's kind of the same composition. And so again, as a lookout you can see the detail, as, you, as you've described. There's a wing of an American airplane in the water there. Um, you can see the Japanese pilot bailing out of the airplane um, right as he's releasing the torpedo, probably in vain. You know, it really is in the details of the painting, you can tell what did Thibodeau see when he was the lookout, right? It's just amazing. I, it, it's a, it is a shame that we have lost him because I would love to be able to sit down with him as a curator and, mm -hmm. and, and with the paintings right there before us and just ask him and say, could you, could you, why did you depict it this way? Because seeing, I don't know if that was a pilot, I thought maybe it was a rear gunner of the, uh, uh, the B-5N Kate torpedo plane, but, but he's almost waving. He's, he's mm -hmm. practically waving as he's exiting the aircraft with, with, the, with the flames and the smoke streaking by. Did it actually happen? I, I found that, Thibodeau is fairly accurate with the details in his paintings. He's, he doesn't really embellish. At least I didn't find any obvious example of embellishment uh, or artistic license, mm -hmm. if you will, in some of the details. You can see Yorktown there uh, having been torpedoed. The torpedo is struck on the, uh, looks like the starboard side there. She's already beginning to list and, and 
take on water in the Cape. Even the attacks, even how the planes are depicted coming in on their attacks, if you look to the far right uh, on the port side, uh, the, the aft port side of Pensacola, you can see the planes are down low on their torpedo runs. Very, very fine detail. And there was another painting I don't uh, that actually depicts uh, the attacks by Mitsubishi Betty bombers off Tarawa in Operation Galvanic. And therein, too, Thibodeau captures the attack runs of the, the, of the Bettys perfectly, just as it was right out of a photograph. Mm. But I haven't necessarily seen any photographic images of the attack on the, I think it was the afternoon of November 19th, maybe it was November 20th, mm -hmm. uh, 1943, of those Mitsubishi bombers going in. Is that painting uh, in your collection? We do have that painting, yes. Uh, uh, we, we do have, a, I think I want to say that was a Battle of Tarbo. We do have that one also in our collection. I think you guys ended up publishing, uh, now I'm flipping through my copy here, one, two, three, four. You published uh, six of the seven canvases that we have of okay. his. Uh, the one I just mentioned, his sister actually had in her possession, and she donated it to us a couple years ago. Uh, Thibodeau has, has donated six canvases originally, five of which had been published as lithographs. And all these are in storage currently. Uh, as I said, I hope to get them out on exhibition at some point, or perhaps U.S. and I would like to arrange a loan of them, and you guys could have them on display at your headquarters. Ooh, Ooh yeah, we'd love okay. that. We're going to take you up on that. Uh, certainly, as we build the conference center, we need to have this yeah. sort of thing going on. So, you know, as I'm hearing you speak, Frank, I, I'm just what just came to my mind is what we see in these six canvases in this issue of naval history is therapy, right? I mean, this was a young man who's processing his first exposure to war. And, you know, if you consider the image, as you said, he didn't embellish, he doesn't embellish. So here we see the guy, Gunner, or the, the pilot bailing out of uh, the, uh, what kind of airplane do we say that was there? Not a Betty, but what was it? Uh, Kate. So that's a Kate, right? And so he's, he's processing the death of shipmates. He's processing trauma of war, explosions, fire, um, this really was, it doesn't overstate it to say this was his therapy. I, th I think that's true to a great extent. I also think he probably saw it as a witness. He's also providing a service to his shipmates. Uh, at one point, one of his, one of his documents, he did, or maybe I got it from his autobiography, he mentions he had you know, 1,200 critics on board, and the crew <laughs> would always put in their two cents worth examining his paintings to make sure he got everything right. It's, he may be the... The, the creator of the art, but it's a shared experience. Mm -hmm. And he's also sharing it with his crew to help all of them in a way, uh, perhaps relieve some of the trauma of what they experienced in the war. And Thibodeau is not the only crew member to, to receive all 13 battle stars. There are actually quite a few, from what I could find, crew members who were there for the entire war, wow. uh, who undoubtedly they all shared a very close bond uh, forged in battle. But to have a to have a ship and to have a crew member able to capture the experience like Thibodeau did is is really a gift uh, a great gift, and I'm sure for a lot of the Pensacola crewmen it was they they felt very fortunate to have someone like Clarence Thibodeau on board. And you think again about the op tempo of this ship at Midway, hauls ass to Pearl Harbor for repairs and then gets right back into the war in Guadalcanal. You know this kind of op tempo as we think about. Uh, you know, how hard our fleet is being run these days. 
you know, again, the greatest generation and what they did, as you said, most of the crew was there for the duration. Uh, it's just incredible stuff. And certainly, uh, coincidentally, Seventh Fleet today and the up-tempo of Seventh, as well as the up-tempo of Pensacola, maybe some things don't change uh, in, in the course of the Navy in the Pacific. Before we wrap up, let's just talk about the, the final uh, photo or final um, canvas that is shown in this uh, uh, article, which is uh, titled Night Scene of Carrier, Sailor Sleeping on Deck. Uh, so as you mentioned earlier, five of the canvases that were donated in 1957 uh, had been published and only one until now was not published and that's this one uh, and so it's a very tranquil scene it's not combat it's uh, night steaming with a carrier off in the distance a moon coming through the clouds uh, and a sailor is uh, is sleeping on deck and as you you uh, write uh, having spent the entirety of the war sleeping on deck it is likely this painting is a self-portrait of the artist so uh, did you when you were researching this and find, you know, reading any of Thibodeau's writing, did he did he talk about or write about having slept on deck uh, for the entire uh, duration of the war? He did, and that's I, I took that from his autobiography, where he he mentions he frequently slept on deck uh, when opportunity permitted or the weather was nice. He would just sleep right there on the deck plate, and he doesn't talk about this painting anywhere else. Uh, we don't have much in our files, in fact, when he donated it to us. And so that's where I'm, perhaps as a historian, taking a bit of artistic license, if you will, on my, on my own part. Uh, in fact, the, the clue to this and where I found this is in his autobiography, he had mentioned he had been discharged and he was aboard a train uh, heading actually to Great Lakes uh, to be formally discharged. They didn't have a, a bunk for him in one of the cabins, so he... He decided, uh, quote, since I was an enlisted man, I ended up sleeping on the floor. It wasn't so bad, actually, since I'd spent most of the past four years sleeping on my ship's deck. Another day didn't make much difference. And that led me to believe that he's probably depicting himself here. There's, it looks like there's two crew members are in the tub for what appears to be a five-inch gun. And they're there kind of observing the carrier in the distance. And if that is, in fact, Thibodeau, he's off in his off in his dreams at the moment uh, with not a care in the world it's just something so tranquil about it that leads me to believe that's him and uh, i thought a very fitting a very fitting painting and yet enigmatic of the man yeah it's a great great amazing detail richard you got one last question well it's not a question i just wanted to point out to our listeners that uh, Frank's article, The Gray Ghost Artist, is featured on uh, Naval History's website. You get there by going to usni.org and clicking on the Naval History button. And if you scroll down on the right, you'll see The Gray Ghost Artist. Just click on that and you'll get a chance to read the article and to see these paintings. Is that in We've front of the paywall? Is yes, that open to for this month, it's, it's in front of the paywall. There you go. We uh, have to wrap up this uh, episode of the Proceedings Podcast. wanted to thank again Miranda Summers-Lowe from the National Museum of American History. And Miranda, uh, you are one of the organizers of this event coming up on 18 July at the Donald Reynolds Center for American Art and Portraiture at 8th and G Streets Northwest. The event is called Toward a More Inclusive Women's Military History. Open to the public, starts at 8.30 in the morning, goes until 6.30 p.m. Should be a really great event. You've got uh, keynote speakers and panel discussions, and it just sounds like a great event. We're going to have a couple of uh, folks from our staff there. Uh, So thanks for joining us, Miranda. Great. Hope to see you guys there. 
All right. And uh, Frank Blasich from also from the National Museum of American History. And Frank, as uh, as Richard just pointed out, is the author of this amazing article in uh, the July August issue of Naval History Magazine, also on our website, The Great Ghosts Artist, the story of uh, Clarence Thibodeau, who was a uh, an artist on board the USS Pensacola during all of her 13 Battlestar missions uh, in World War II. So, Frank, thank you for joining us, and thanks for writing for Naval History. Thank you all for having me. All right, that wraps up this episode of the Proceedings Podcast. We'll uh, be back again next week. And until then, victory begins at the Naval Institute. Have a great week. The Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by Hydroid. Hydroid's small, medium, and large class Remus unmanned underwater vehicles are used worldwide to collect valuable data in waters up to 6,000 meters deep for mine countermeasures, hydrography, and search and rescue operations. Learn more about Remus UUVs at www.hydroid.com.